Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. As I've been preaching through the book of Philippians, we'll be reading verses 10 to 13 that we began last week and now we'll complete this week. Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13. Hear the word of God. But I rejoice greatly, or rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In these verses, as we began to see last week, we learned something about contentment from the life of the Apostle Paul, who wrote, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now last week I gave you an outline that we would be following last week and now this week. Five points in that outline. First of all, we saw a definition of contentment and then the foundation of contentment, the comprehensiveness of contentment, the school of contentment, and the source, or you might say the secret of contentment. We saw last week that as sinful human beings, we are prone to be discontent. We are inclined to discontentment. And we can be discontent about any and everything. And discontentment, we saw, has many companions and friends. It's never alone. It always has friends like greed or covetousness, bitterness, ungratefulness, complaining, and even anger. And sometimes discontentment, has companions like murder and adultery or divorce. Discontentment destroys the life, it destroys relationships, and it can even destroy marriage. And we saw that the human heart is a breeding ground for discontentment. And it is an ugly sin that must be battled against by the believer in the power of the Spirit. We must repent of discontentment and replace it with contentment, with joy, thanksgiving, and trust in God. And as we'll see further today, we must learn contentment. The Apostle Paul had to learn contentment, and so do we. We saw last week that if we are to put discontentment to death, if we're to repent of it, we need to know what it means, excuse me, to be content. And therefore, I gave you a definition of contentment. The word contentment means to be satisfied. And Jeremiah Burroughs, in his uh, book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, defined contentment in this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now you have to think about that because that's the language of the Puritans. And so my way of describing it, 
is simply contentment is being satisfied with what God has provided for you, what he is doing in your life, and where he has you. And so we see in that definition that contentment has to do with God. We acknowledge that God is sovereign over all things and whatever he does is right. And therefore, when we are discontent, we're really discontent with God. We're discontent with his providence. So when we complain, we're really complaining against God. When we're dissatisfied, we're dissatisfied with God himself. But when we are content, we're satisfied with God's providence. We're satisfied with what he has provided for us, what he is actively doing in our lives for his glory, where he has us at that particular station, so to speak, in life. And so that being true and understanding the definition of contentment, we consider the foundation of contentment. And the foundation of contentment is God himself knowing him and then acting upon who he is. So contentment is based on and rooted in who God is, the very character of God. And so if we're going to cultivate contentment, we have to know God. And that's why in verse 10, the Apostle Paul, when he begins to speak about contentment in the particular circumstance he was in, he begins by saying, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Everything was always in view of the Lord, who he is, his character, his nature, and therefore it was always cause for rejoicing. And so Paul's joy was in the Lord, and his contentment was in the Lord. It was rooted in the very character of God. Paul wrote these words from prison. He's under house arrest for preaching the gospel, and yet he can rejoice and be content in any and every circumstance Because he knows certain things to be true about God. God is sovereign. And God is good. And he didn't just know this, but he acted upon it. And he lived in light of these truths. And so we saw that the foundation of contentment is God himself and his character. Contentment is being satisfied ultimately with what or in whom? Well, in God. And so as you grow in your love for God the knowledge of God, and you live in light of who he is, then you will grow in contentment. So we saw a definition, we saw the foundation of contentment, and then we talked about the comprehensiveness of contentment. That when you are content and you cultivate Christian contentment, then it aids in satisfaction in other areas of life as well. It bears fruit in the whole life, in the whole soul. And so even as discontentment has many companions or friends, like, again, greed and covetousness, bitterness, ungratefulness, complaining, anger, murder, adultery, even so contentment has companions, but not ungodly companions, but godly companions. It bears fruit. The fruit of contentment is... Contentment with what God has provided in relationship to material things. When we're content in God and in God alone, and we understand his character, the foundation of our contentment, then we relate rightly to material things. It bears the fruit of thanksgiving. It affects our tongues. Instead of complaining, there's thanksgiving. We're thankful in relationships when we're content. So relationships are affected. 
We're content with God's good gifts like marriage and the marriage bed so it bears the fruit of faithfulness in marriage. Contentment is comprehensive in its effect on the soul and the life. And so we should be cultivating it. And when we do, we'll see sanctification in other areas of life as well. Now, this morning, we want to consider the last two points in the outline I gave you. Namely, the school of contentment. What did Paul learn in the school of contentment, so to speak? And what do we learn from him? And then the source of contentment. Or we might say, as the text says, the secret of contentment. And so let's begin this morning with the school of contentment. Now, why do I call it the school of contentment? Well, school is where we do what, children? What do you do in school? We learn. Exactly right. It's where we learn. To be schooled is to be taught, to be trained. God always has us in school. As believers, we don't graduate from school until we see him face to face. And some would argue that we still don't. We're still growing and learning the the knowledge and glory of God. It is inexhaustible. But we know on this side of death, before we go to heaven, that God always has us in school. He is always teaching and training us, so to speak. He is always at work to make those who have trusted in Christ as Savior to be more like their Savior. And this is what the Bible calls sanctification. We're growing in holiness. And God is at work. He has us in the school of sanctification, so to speak, changing us, molding us into the image of Christ. And a part of that school of sanctification is the school of contentment. So one of the courses that God has enrolled us in is a course on contentment. And this is an ongoing course. It doesn't last a semester or two. And you don't go to this course on contentment a few hours a week. And it's not actually even confined to a classroom. You're in it for life. And the classroom is all of life. And it's concurrent with all other courses. And the instructor is God himself. God is providentially and graciously orchestrating all the events of our lives that we might learn contentment and learn to be satisfied in Him alone. We are in the school of contentment. So how are you doing in the school of contentment? Maybe you didn't even know you were in that school. Maybe you didn't realize that you're actually in a course, so to speak, in which God is the teacher teaching you contentment. Maybe you didn't even know that all the providences of God, all the circumstances of your life are a test, as it were, training you to be content in Christ. That's why I call it the school of contentment, because the Apostle Paul himself had to learn it. And he was a good student. And he's a good example for us to follow as we read his words here. One of the things that the Apostle Paul learned in the school of contentment is that contentment is learned. 
It doesn't come natural for sinners, even redeemed sinners. We must be trained by God's grace to be content. Know how we need to learn contentment in Christ. Look at what Paul said in verse 11. He says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Contentment is learn. The, the verb here, the Greek word behind our English translation is manthano. And it means to learn from experience. It's not the idea of going to a, a classroom and just learning knowledge. It's not theoretical. It's the idea that it's something that is learned from experience. But as I said it, and as I said, it's not confined to a classroom. This is learned, we, as we say in education, this is learned in the field. It's learned by doing. You don't go to a classroom on contentment and learn it in that way. No, it's learned in the field of life, so to speak. And so God teaches us contentment in the milieu, as my French isn't good, and I don't have any actually, but... <laughs> But that means basically in, in the day-to-day life, in the, you know, as we, in the words of scriptures, we walk by the way, as we sit down, as we rise up, in every area of life, God is teaching us contentment. You learn contentment by being in situations that challenge your comforts. You hear that? You learn contentment. By being in situations in the providence of God that challenge your comforts. So God wisely orchestrates all things to teach us the futility of seeking satisfaction in material things or seeking satisfaction in sinful things or anything else that cannot truly satisfy. And God wisely orchestrates all things to teach us contentment. And he is, I'm emphasizing, wisely. He, he does this wisely. He's a wise teacher. He's the best teacher there's ever been, right? But he's also a good teacher. And I don't mean good as in his abilities. By good, I mean his character. His instruction may be difficult. It may be a difficult course. But it comes from a good and kind God who has the spiritual good of his children as their goal. And therefore, we can fully trust our teacher as we learn contentment in God's classroom, so to speak, as God providentially orchestrates all things. So the Apostle Paul knew this to be true. And this is how he learned contentment. Now, to further show how contentment is learned, look at verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes, For I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So notice the words, I know how. I know how, and I have learned. He didn't say, I know about this. Let me just tell you about contentment. 
He didn't say, well, I know the textbook says this about contentment. I know the textbook definition of contentment. No, he says, I know how to be content. I have learned it. So here's a person who submitted to God's providence, who trusted God's goodness, and it yielded the fruit of contentment. Contentment in Jesus Christ. So in this school of contentment, we're all students as believers. God has us there for our spiritual good. And we have to learn it. And we have to know how then to live in every circumstance. Not in being discontented, but contented. But what specifically did the apostle learn that was a help to him and will be an aid to us too? Well, here's a very simple truth that you see in these verses, but it is foundational as well. Christian contentment is not based on circumstances. Now, that is what the world says. That is what we naturally believe. I can be content when things go well, when I get what I want, when things are happy, so to speak. But I'm not to be content when things don't go well, and so our circumstances tend to dictate whether we're content or discontent. But true Christian Contentment is not based on circumstances. We have to learn that because it's not natural to us. The Apostle Paul had to learn that. Again, verses 11 and 12. Not that I speak from want or need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. You see those words? It's not based on his circumstances. I've learned, Paul says, to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And then he goes on to spell that out. Here in reference reference to material things, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance. See, it's not based on his circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And so the Apostle Paul gives opposite circumstances to demonstrate the truth that contentment is not based on circumstances. So notice he speaks of humble means and prosperity. Being filled, his tummy is full. But he also knows how to be content when he's hungry. He uses abundance on the one hand, but suffering need on the other hand. And he says, I've learned, I've learned how to live content in Christ in those opposite circumstances. Because Christian contentment is not based on circumstances. Now we think it is, and that's why we say things or think things like, If only I had fill in the blank, then I would be content. If only whatever we might be thinking of would take place, then I would be content. But then we find out that's not actually true. Maybe for a period of time there's something that approximates contentment. But then we get dissatisfied again, and now there's something else. If only I had 
this, then I would be content. If only this would take place in my life, then I would be content. If only I had this job, then I would be content. If only I made this amount of money, then I would be content. But it's not enough. We get discontent with that job. We get discontent with the amount of money. If only we could buy this house or this car. If only I could be in this relationship. If only I could have this station and circumstance of life, then I would be content. But in the end, If it's not based on what we're going to see in a minute, and that is Christ himself, then in the end it's not real, true Christian contentment. And eventually, we're discontent again. We've really been instructed more in the world's school of contentment than we have Christ's school of contentment. Now, in the context of this passage... Paul is speaking of contentment in relationship to physical and material needs. In his circumstance, he was in prison. He had some material need, a financial need, you might say, and and they met his need. But he is telling them, even before you met it, I learned to be content. But even now that this need has been met, I'm still content in whatever circumstance And so he's talking about physical and material things here in the context because riches or the lack of them really is a test of our heart on our hearts. It tests our contentment. Now, in what way do riches test us? Well, there's the test of poverty and there's the test of prosperity. There's the test of being in need, and there's the test of having an abundance. And both are tests for our souls, whether we're going to be content, not in the circumstance, but in God and in Christ alone. So a poor person can be tempted as well to be discontent, and we readily understand that. Well, they don't have what they need. Of course, they're discontent. And a poor person, a poor believer, there's some situation that now there's some need financially. They can begin to doubt God's goodness. But the rich person can be tempted to be discontent as well. We know that they're never satisfied. Riches can't satisfy. And so the person who has an abundance can still be discontent. I want more. And there can be the temptation to presume upon God's goodness, even if they acknowledge God is the one who has given me this. Then they presume upon it, and they become content, not in God, but in the riches themselves, until they make wings and fly away. The poor person can be tempted to become discouraged by his humble circumstances. The rich person can be tempted to trust in his wealth. That's why Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9 says this, Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. So here, a wise person said, I don't want poverty or riches. Just give me what I need day by day. Give me the portion for that day. Why? That I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. So there the writer of that proverb is saying, there's a test in poverty, but there's also a test in riches. They're different in one sense, but they have the same root, discontentment. 
So both poverty and riches are a temptation to sin and a temptation to discontentment. And therefore, in the school of contentment, God teaches us to think rightly about, in this case, money and financial things, material things, material possessions. In the school of contentment, we're taught to beware of thinking that life is about money. In Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus said, beware. When he says that, you need to listen. It's saying, pay attention, here's a danger. And be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. This is a part of what we learn in the school of contentment. You need to be aware that even when there's abundance... Life isn't about those things. It's not about possessions, ultimately. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote this, That which is but for a season, that is, it's temporary, cannot make one blessed. Can't really make you happy and give you true joy. It's but for a season. It's temporary. All things under the sun are but for a season. The world passes away. 1 John 2, verse 17. Riches and honor are fugitive. That is, it's brief, it's fleeting, it's running away. What does a fugitive do? It's running away. He's saying, riches and honor are fugitive. They're running away from you. They pass away. While they are with us, they are going away from us, like ice which melts away while it's in your hand. Someone has said this, possessions are only the traveling luggage of time. They're not the stuff of eternity. It would be sensible, therefore, to travel light. When you board a plane, you can only take a certain amount of baggage with you. And the rest must be left at the checkout, the checking counter. I haven't flown in a long time, so I don't even know what that is these days, but it's not a lot. But I know this, at death, no baggage goes with you. It all must be left in this world. These are things we learn in the school of contentment. We have to learn that life does not consist of possessions. So when I have an abundance or when I'm in need, I can still be content. Those things are temporal anyway. There are some who have what you might call a poverty theology and some that have a prosperity theology. There are some who believe they need to make themselves poor if they're going to serve God. And so from time to time, you've seen it in church history, and you see some who take a vow of poverty. They have a poverty theology. I I want to be poor, and this is how I'm going to learn contentment, is I'm going to vow, make a vow of poverty. But you know what? That does not strike to the heart of contentment, because you can be poor and still be discontent. But then there are those who have a prosperity theology, You've heard those. They're a little more numerous today. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And they have a prosperity theology. And if you serve God and you have enough faith, then you're going to be rich. Both are unbiblical. We need to have a stewardship theology. Whatever we have, whether it's little or much, God has given it to us. In his providence, he has provided those things. And if you have gained those things lawfully, 
in accordance with God's will, moral will, then he has provided those things out of his goodness and you're a steward of it. Whether you have a little house or a big house, whether you have five cars or one car that barely gets down the road, God's given it to you. Use it as a steward. You're not an owner. This is stewardship theology. That we're to be good stewards of what God has given us. We're to use it for his glory. And we're to be content in whatever he has provided, giving honor and glory to him. We don't trust in those things. We don't fret when they're lacking. We trust in him and we rest in him. Now, money and possessions are just one example of how we can be discontent and one circumstance in which we need to be content. But in verse 11, Paul again says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now, again, in the immediate context, he's talking about material needs, but Paul learned to be content in any and every circumstance, whether it had to do with physical health, whether it had to do with certain relationships and difficulties, thorns in the flesh, conflict, persecution, whatever it is. He learned to be content in whatever circumstances he was in. But how fragile our contentment is, isn't it? It's very fragile. We can go from contentment to discontentment in a second. We can go from joy and thanksgiving to complaining and ungratefulness with the slightest thing, a bad weather day. And all of a sudden, we're, we're discontent. We're complaining. Or a cold. A common cold can just take us from contentment to discontent. A crying baby. Everything's good. Baby crying. Oh, now we're discontent. If these things in life can turn us toward discontentment, then how can we ever handle the greater difficulties in life? A wayward child, marriage to an unsaved spouse, the death of a spouse, a major illness or disease. Paul says his contentment was not based on his circumstances. They're all planned by God. And they came from a good and loving and wise God. And so whatever the circumstance, small or great, whatever the difficulty, small or great, he had learned to be content. Again, this is completely counter to our culture. How many of you are familiar, you don't have to answer, but just think about it, are familiar with the name Abraham Maslow? You may be familiar with the name Abraham Maslow who lived from 1908 to 1970. You may know that name, but whether you know that name or not, you've been influenced by him. Maybe you've heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you've not heard of that, you've been influenced by it. Maybe you've heard of what is called self-actualization. These are all theories and and principles taught by Abraham Maslow, an American psychologist. It takes different names, and at the root of this, it finds itself in in contemporary culture in various ways, but Abraham Maslow defines self-actualization to be self-fulfillment, namely the tendency 
of the individual to become actualized when, and really reach his potential. I'm just giving it to you kind of in the vernacular today. You want to reach your potential. You want to self-actualize. And to do so, he had this, this triangle and at the bottom was foundational. He said in order to self-actualize, in order to reach your potential, you have to first have certain physiological needs met. There are safety needs that you have. There's, there's needs of, of belonging. There are self-esteem needs. And when those needs are met, beginning with the most fundamental physiological needs, safety needs, belonging needs, esteem needs, then you can self-actualize. You can reach your potential. And this is really a lot of the foundation of where we get the self-esteem movement. And we've all been influenced by it in some way or another. We say things like, well, I need this. How can I be content when, when I'm hungry? But it's so contrary to what the Bible actually says. If the Apostle Paul bought into Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, he would have not written these words. He would have said, I'm in need. When I'm in need, I can't be content. My physiological needs, safety needs, I'm in prison. And I might die for the sake of Christ. Belonging needs, I'm not, these people don't want me. Some people are after me and want me to die. And what about his self-esteem? Will that crush your self-esteem? The Apostle Paul would say that we can be content and glorify God even when you don't even have physiological needs met. Even when you're in danger. You can still be content in Christ. And you know what? The focus of Scripture is not self-actualization. What is the goal of the Christian life? To glorify God, the chief end of man, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So if you're in prison, hungry, and about to face execution for the name of Christ, if the goal is not self-actualization and reaching your supposed potential, but it's the glory of God, can you be content? Yes, you can. You see, it's not based on our circumstances. Contentment is based on God himself and bringing glory to God. And with this, we shall be satisfied. And so contentment is based on, I'll give you another principle you learn in the school of contentment. Contentment is based on understanding real needs. Real needs as defined by Scripture. We use the word need rather loosely. And so just like there are these little things in our family, these little words that we say and we all, when we say we need something, that's one of those words that triggers us to say, do you really want to use the word need there or do you mean you want it? (laughs) You need it or you want it. We use it rather loosely. I, I need some time off. Do I need it or do I want it? I need this or that. I, I need, we even do this in relationships. I need you to love me. Well, again, there are responsibilities that we have before God, but do I need it in order to be content in Christ and glorify him? No. You might have a spouse who has left you, who does not love you anymore, they say. You can still bring glory to God. 
We use need, the word need, very loosely. Many times we we use it this way. We say, I need this. And really what we're saying is, I deserve this. Now you talk about a wrong theology. We're now off of what brings glory to God to what we think we deserve. Now when it comes to material things, the Apostle Paul would talk about what was sufficient for life in another passage in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, and verse, or verses 6 through 8, he said, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. He says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. That's where we get that phrase. You see no hearses behind, um, oh, I just lost the name. Help me. U-Haul, it's behind hearses. Thank you. You see no U-Hauls behind hearses. You can't take it with you. You've never seen that. It it would be absurd. I mean, they tried to do it in the days of Egypt where they would mummify the the Pharaoh and put all his jewels with him as if somehow he could take it to some other afterlife. But, But that's foolishness. We know that. Materially, all I need for life is food and covering. And so Paul said, if we have food and covering, with this we shall be content. So there are materials, materially we say, here's what I need if I'm going to live. I need food, and of course drink is a part of that. I need water, I need sustenance for my body, I need covering because the elements could cause my death. And so when it comes to need for physical life, that's all I really need. But you know what, even when it comes to spiritual contentment, I really don't even need that. There might be a circumstance in which in the will of God, and there have been with others throughout church history and those today in the world who are being deprived of food and covering because they're Christians. And in the will of God, they still can be content in Christ. Paul learned this. He learned these principles and he applied it in the school of contentment. Paul learned what if I can just put it this way, a kind of spiritual adaptability. Spiritual adaptability. That's a good word maybe to use. It's not the word that's used here, but, but it's, we can think of it in this way. We need to be adaptable. <laughs> not rigid. Saying, well, no, I don't like prosperity on the one hand and then the swing to being in need and, and having want on the other. No, whatever circumstance, be adaptable. Learn to live to the glory of God in any and every circumstance. We have the it's my way or no way. And we're inflexible. If I'll follow Christ if he gives me this. No, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Those who are content are adaptable. They don't demand certain conditions and circumstances. We deserve nothing. And those who are content are adaptable and therefore look at those things that are constant and true spiritually. Whether I'm in need or have an abundance, Christ is the same. By the way, parents, are you teaching your children this? Are you teaching them adaptability? I mean, this is a principle. As we train our children, part of our training of them is to teach them, even before God saves them, 
And we pray that they do, but even then we're teaching them principles from the scripture. You say, but they're lost. Why teach them adaptability and, and being content in every circumstance? They're not Christians yet, so it's not true Christian contentment. Because if God has mercy on their soul, you have been tilling the ground and preparing it for the seed. So that's a good and holy thing to do. So teach your children to be adaptable. You say, well, when do I do that? When they're born? Parents are adaptable to their children often. What does this crying baby want? Let me give it to them. No, you need to start teaching your child at very young ages adaptability. What that means is, now it's work. It's a school. They need to learn it. It means when you drop them off in the nursery and they cry, it's okay. They need to be adaptable. It means when it's the Lord's day, it's not like the other six days. Be adaptable. And you're teaching them principles. And as they get older, they may not understand it at very young ages, but you're, you're teaching them some things. And as they get older, we wonder sometimes, why are our children so discontent? And they say, I need this, I want this, and I can't be happy if I can't have this, this, or that. We've taught it to them. They've been in the school of discontentment in our homes. So we teach it to them and we teach them these principles. And then, if by the grace of God, when they, they believe on Christ, now those principles aren't foreign to them. Now they have eyes to see and ears to hear and say, oh, that's what you were teaching me. And here's why. So here we see the school of contentment. But, last time, don't be afraid, be content. The fifth point, notice the source of contentment. Or you might say the secret of contentment. How can we be content in every circumstance? What is the, the secret of contentment? The secret of contentment is that the source of contentment is Christ. My union with Christ my relationship to him, and the strength that he provides. So Paul says in verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both having abundance and suffering need. And here's where we say, wait for it. What's the secret, Paul? Verse 13. I can do all things through Christ or Him who strengthens me. This is probably one of the most abused verses in all of Scripture in which people take Philippians 4.13 and they use it as a blank check, so to speak, to success in everything. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And they take it right out of the Bible and they put it on posters. I remember as a, a, teenage, a teenager who just believed on Christ, seen in a Christian bookstore, remember when they had those? And there was a poster and it had somebody playing basketball and it said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me or him who strengthens me. And I, I remember even then thinking, that, that's not what that verse is about. It's really the secular view of believe in yourself, just let's sanctify it a little. Christ will do this through you. So, but I never was able to dunk in basketball. 
It's because this verse isn't talking about that. It doesn't mean all things in the sense of any and everything. The context is important. All things. Humble means prosperity. Being filled, going hungry. Abundant, suffering, need. This verse is not about accomplishing and doing whatever you want to do because Christ is going to give you the strength to do it. It's about contentment. And so Paul says, here's the source, here's the secret. I can do all things through him. Stop there. Contentment is based on a person, not a circumstance. I can do all things through him. Contentment is found in a person. And who is the him? Well, I think he goes back to verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. I believe the Paul, Paul here is speaking particularly about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's faith was in Jesus unto salvation. Remember Philippians 3? Paul was united with Christ and all the spiritual blessings of salvation were through him. Christ was with him. The Lord is near. Christ was his life. He said in chapter 1, verse 21, for to, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's all about Christ. Therefore, he can say, I can do all things. I can be in any circumstance with contentment through him. Because Jesus is the source of contentment. But he didn't stop there. There's more. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ gave him strength to do all things and live in any and every circumstance with contentment. He said, it doesn't come from me. I can do all these things because of the one that I know savingly. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. I am united with him. And he gives me the strength to be content in every circumstance. See, Stoic philosophy at the time that Paul wrote this said this, a man should be sufficient unto himself for all things, and a man should be able by the power of his own will to resist the force of circumstances. Pull up your bootstraps, be a man, and trust in your own power. Paul says, no, that's a path to destruction. I can do all things with contentment through him who gives me strength. It can only be done by Christ's power. And in this is a promise as well. Paul knew the promise that God would give him through Christ the strength and power he needed not just to get through every circumstance, but to be content in every circumstance. Our circumstances often show us how powerless we are in ourselves, and that's good. Because then we're forced to turn and rely upon the one who gives strength. So Paul is saying this, I can do all things. I can live in any and every circumstance with complete contentment through, because of my relationship with him. That is Christ, my Savior, my Lord, who is my contentment. For he gives me strength. And because of his strength, I'm content. 
So really, all I need is Christ. He is the source of contentment, and he grants the strength I need to be content in every circumstance. Believers, what circumstance are you in? I can say with surety, whatever circumstance you are in right now, whether it be prosperity or want, whether it be times of great joy or times of need or trial, whatever the circumstance you're in, you're in the school of Christ, the school of contentment. What circumstance are you in? Ask this question, who has you there? What is God teaching you in his school of contentment? And what is he prying from your hands that you've been finding contentment in? Find your joy and contentment in Jesus and in him alone. Unbelievers. Those of you who have not come to Christ and put your faith in him alone for your salvation. You don't have Christ. There should be no contentment. What I've been teaching this morning is not for you. And it's not true of you. You can't do all things through Christ because you're not in Christ. You've not trusted Him. You've not come to Him. You've not humbled yourself before Him. There should be no contentment. And the things you're finding contentment in and satisfaction in will condemn you on the day of judgment You need Christ. You must be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. You're not currently in the school of contentment. You're in the court of judgment under the wrath of a holy God. But that judge is merciful. And Jesus is a compassionate Savior. And Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So come to Him and believe upon Him and be saved and reconciled to God, sins forgiven, that you may know the contentment and joy that is only found in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, how can we ever complain? How can we ever be discontent when we have Christ as believers? We're united with Christ. He is our Savior, our Lord. He is our God. He is our helper. He is our satisfaction. He is our joy. He is our contentment. Father, I pray that we might be more perceptive and spiritually minded to be aware of the school of contentment that you have us in until we see our Savior face to face. And I pray for those who do not know you, who are without Christ. Lord, I pray they would find no rest for their souls until they find their rest in the one who is life. They would Lord, come to the one who is the bread of life and those who partake Of this bread, never hunger. The one who is living water, to those who drink of him, never thirst. That all their spiritual needs to be reconciled to you 
is found in Christ. I pray that they would turn to him and believe upon him now. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.